Today we're going to be speaking on Genesis 1, 26 through 31, entitled, A Little Lower Than the Angels. I like to come up with quips to post on Facebook every day, and a couple of weeks ago I posted this. In today's living world, there were over 7 billion chances to prove evolution in humans. All failed. Add in animals and you're in the trillions. Epic fail. There is nothing, nothing in the archaeological record to substantiate even the slightest hint of evolution occurring anywhere in any form of life. The best that the record shows is changes within a species to adapt to current environmental conditions. Some people call this microevolution, but better than that, because microevolution is a, an erroneous term, better than that, I would use the term adaptation. And a good example of adaptation would be people who live in Japan. My father was stationed there in the 1950s in the U.S. Coast Guard. And when he was there, he'd get onto a bus and he was a head taller than all of the people that were there. 30 years later in the 1980s, I went to Japan. I spent six years there and I'd get on the bus and all of the older people were about a head, head shorter than me. But all of the younger people were as tall as I was and some of them were even taller than I was. And all of this was the result of a better diet. By the time I got there, McDonald's had moved in and they were all over the place. So the rice of the previous generations had been replaced with the Big Mac. And all of the people adapted accordingly. But there has never been any evolutionary development in Japan by those people or at any other time in the, the uh, recorded the record of archaeological history. If evolution were true, out of all of the billions and billions, even trillions of life forms that come and go throughout each generation, we would see not a few, but we would see thousands and thousands of developments in every generation. But none have occurred, not even one. At the top of the ladder is and always has been man. And every new baby's smile is one more nail in evolution's already well-nailed coffin. And in the end, a faulty premise equals a faulty conclusion. The order of the creation is as it was because it is the way that God ordained it to be. On the second half of the sixth day of creation, God created man. And since then, some people have been born as dummies and some people have been born as geniuses, but none have developed according to the evolutionary model. Unusual change does occur though in certain circumstances. If you've seen the movie The Rain Man with uh, Dustin Hoffman, it was based on a real person, a guy named Kim Peek, and what he can do is truly astounding. He's read over 12,000 books and he remembers every single thing in every one of those books. He's known as computer because of this. For example, if you ask him what is the 75th word on the 462nd page of the King James Version, which he has read, he can tell you what that word is. He actually reads two pages at one time. He'll read the left page with his left eye and he'll read the right page with his right eye. And he remembers every single thing that he reads. He remembers every single thing that he reads on those books. It takes him about three seconds to read through both pages and as I said, he remembers everything on him. He can recall facts and he can recall trivia of more than, of many uh, major subject areas, uh, up to 15 major subject areas, uh, including history, geography, and sports. And if you tell him any date 
in history, any date at all, he can tell you what day of the week it was. And he also remembers every single piece of music that he has ever heard in his entire life. Another savant, a guy named Daniel Tammet, is one of the world's only highly functioning autistic savants. In other words, most savants are limited in one area because of their exceptional ability in another, another area. But Daniel Tammet is an exception to this. He first became famous quite a few years ago when he recited Pi to 22,514 decimal places. And numbers are special to him because he has a rare form of what's known as synesthesia, where he actually sees numbers. They each have their own unique shapes, they have their own color, they have their own texture, and even their own feel. And he sees this in his mind. And he can see the result of a mathematical calculation when he uh, you know, does a mathematical calculation in his mind. He can actually see that result. And he can sense whether a number is prime or not, even if it's a gigantic number. He can always sense whether it's prime. And he, can, he drew what the number pi looks like. To him, it looks like a, uh, a rolling landscape full of different colors and different shades. And Daniel Tammet not only knows numbers very well, but he speaks 11 languages. That's not exceptional in and of itself. When my grandmother was alive, she knew a guy that lived down the road from us that knew 47 languages. His name was McKinley Canner. He was a famous author, I believe. But this guy knows 11 languages. He's very gifted in languages. And in 2007, a documentary followed him around and challenged him to learn a language in a single week. Seven days later, he was interviewed on Icelandic television speaking in Icelandic. And it is, Icelandic language is quite possibly the most complicated language on earth today. And it is a language which many people find hard to master that are native speakers of. It's a very complicated language and yet he mastered it in seven days. Now different savants have different gifts. Some of them are sculpture or mapping or painting or music. Some of them can do mathematical calculations like uh, Daniel Tammet or they can learn languages, etc. But savants usually, not always, but they usually acquire their ability after having a severe illness or maybe a blow to the head. So in other words, these abilities that they possess are something that were brought out of what already existed in their own minds. And this means that a person potentially has these same abilities, all of these same abilities, but we're hindered by the limitations that are placed on us, kind of like a, uh, a transmission in a car. If you were to remove that limitation or say switch into the proper gear, then you would be able to access the same level of ability as these savants have. Now, as we've seen over the past 25 verses of Genesis, God created from the simplest to the most complex beings in order. First, he created the heavens and the earth, and after this, he created light, then a firmament, and then he divided the waters from the land. After this, he created the grass, the herbs, and the trees, and then he created the great lights that are in the heavens. Then he made the sea creatures and the birds, and after that, all of the living creatures that are on the land, the cattle and the creeping things that, and the beasts upon the earth. And after all, all of this marvelous beauty, order, and complexity, God had one more thing that he wanted to create. Everything else was prepared for the arrival of this final participant in God's great unfolding drama 
of the universe in which we live. Here's our text verse for today. When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have ordained, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you visit him? For you have made him a little lower than the angels and you have crowned him with glory and honor. So may God speak to us through his word today and may his glorious name ever be praised. Our point number one for today is the crown of creation. Then God said, let us make man in our image, according to our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air and over the cattle, over the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. God's final part of the created order was man. Man is the most complex and the most sophisticated organism in the entire universe. And even more, man bears God's image. Here in the first chapter of Genesis, we see another aspect of God which reveals his nature. The account says, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. Everything in creation, everything that's in creation resembles the creator in a limited way. But the Bible proclaims that man is created in God's image. So what does it specifically mean to be created in the image of God? Let's review a few of the ways that we as God's image bearers reflect him. I talked about these a few months ago when we were up at Siesta Beach and I modified them to fit into the the Genesis account. So I hope that you'll take these to heart, listen to them. How do we reflect God's image? Mentally, we have mental powers to deduce things. We can search things out and we can act rationally. Although not all of us act rationally rationally all the time, that's what our image in God, of God in us, demonstrates is demonstrated when we act rationally. We have reason and we have free will. And this resembles God's intellect. And any time that we use our mental capacities in a constructive way to invent, to write, to paint, to calculate, to enjoy things, all of these things and many others, we reflect God in this way. And then another way that we reflect God's image is morally. We have a sense of righteousness, of justice. We have a sense of mercy and of truthfulness. And we act on these because they came from God in whose image we were created. In other words, these moral tenets are not arbitrary. Instead, when we act in a moral way, we acknowledge that we were created in God's image and that he is the ultimate expression of the morality that we display. Even if we don't always make our moral decisions correctly, and when we don't, Paul reminds us in Romans chapter 1 when he speaks of the wrath of God which is directed at us for our incorrect moral thoughts and our incorrect moral actions. But when we exercise our morals in a positive way, we reflect right morals that are instilled in us by our morally perfect God. Opposing abortion, for example, reflects God's image because we are protecting life that is created by him. When we steal, we move away from God's image because he has an image of uprightness and of justice. And when we steal, we violate that character in ourselves because we were made in God's image. When societies or when individual people write just laws, when they punish evil, when they promote proper behavior, we confirm that a higher standard exists, one which reflects God's image. 
when we use our talents in a way that brings him honor, that's when we reflect his image more perfectly. And another way that we reflect God's image is socially. We were created by God for fellowship, who understands fellowship. Remember what we said in this verse that we just read, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. According to the Bible, there is only one God. But the Bible explains, even in the Old Testament, back in Genesis chapter 1 that we're looking at, Genesis chapter 3, and all the way up in Isaiah chapter 6, we read the same terminology. Let us make man in our image according to our likeness. The Old Testament even reflects the Godhead. In other words, in God there is a fullness. These uh, reflect, they don't prove a trinity, so I don't want to jump to that conclusion, but they reflect a fullness in the Godhead, which is fully explained in the New Testament as a trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And it also confirms God's social nature. When God created man, he did it in order to fellowship with him. And there was no need to create us. He is complete and sufficient in himself, but because of his goodness and because of his social nature, he created man. And this great act of Genesis chapter 1 demonstrates that he is a being who cherishes fellowship. So our fellowship between each other therefore reflects God's social qualities. Every time that a man marries a woman or when a, some, someone makes a friend with somebody else or when they hug a child or when they attend church, they demonstrate that that part of God's image in them this social quality that was made in his image. Not only are we created in God's image, but God said, let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air and over the cattle, over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. God has given man dominion over the creatures of the earth. Although these creatures are wonderfully made We've talked about that last week, the complexity and the beauty and the design in all of these creatures, and we are to care for them. They are not on the same level as man. Unfortunately, people have taken the care of animals to extremes that were never intended by God. We have activist organizations like PETA and the United Nations, which are actually looking for animals to be given the same rights as human beings, and thus are overturning the decree that God made when the animals were put in subjection to man. In fact, not only are they trying to get the same rights in, in, you know, as far as not killing animals, but they are trying to make it where animals can actually be in a court of law and be, uh, you know, protected in a court of law. So we are completely turning away from what God has ordained in the creation of man who was given dominion over these things. We are the caretakers of God's world, and we have been given the right, and we have been given the responsibility to manage the animals of the earth. Even in the Bible, during the time of the judges, God acknowledged that animals needed to be kept in check so as not to overrun the people who were dwelling in the land. Here's what we read from the book of Deuteronomy. Moreover, the Lord your God will send the hornet among them, meaning the people dwelling in the land of Canaan, until those who are left, who hide themselves from you, are destroyed. You shall not be terrified of them, for the Lord your God, the great and awesome God, is among you. And the Lord your God will drive out those nations before you, little by little. You will be unable to destroy them at once, lest the beasts of the field become too numerous for you. So in Genesis, as well as 
elsewhere in the Bible, man is given dominion over the animals to keep them in check and to care and to control them. Likewise in Genesis, when an animal takes a man's life, it is to be destroyed because it has killed God's image bearer. And the same is true with man. If man intentionally kills another man, then his life is to be taken because he has killed another one of God's image bearers. Unfortunately, just like PETA with animals, we have too many liberal thinking people in the world today which cry out against the execution of criminals who commit capital crimes. But the Bible is perfectly clear that the bloodshed of a person can only be atoned for by the shedding of the blood who committed the murder. So we reject these laws at our own peril because they stem not from human governmental laws, but because they stem from the image of God in which we were created. I want to give you a couple of the marvelous facts about our construction, which God did on the sixth day of creation. They show how beautifully we have been sculpted. Zinc, if you eat a little block of zinc, you know your stomach acids can actually eat it up. They're strong enough to dissolve that and all these other things that we put into our stomach, and yet it doesn't ruin our stomach because the stomach in particular renews itself so quickly that the, that the stomach acids never can burn through the stomach. So God did a wonderful, marvelous thing just in the creation of the stomach. The lungs of humans have over 300 million capillaries or these tiny blood vessels. If they were laid end to end, they would stretch 1,500 miles. In America, that would be from coast to coast, from sea to shining sea, is how long these capillaries just in the human lungs would stretch. Human bone is as strong as granite in supporting weight. And a piece of human bone the size of a matchbox can support nine tons of weight. And believe it or not, that is four times as much as concrete can support. The largest organ in the body is skin. An adult male's uh, skin covers about 20 square feet. The skin constantly is flaking away though so that in the average lifetime of the human being, we will shed about 40 pounds of skin. And I was thinking about this as I was preparing for the sermon and I figure there are 7 billion people on the face of the earth. And if you take 40 pounds and multiply it times those 7 billion people, that is 280 billion pounds of flaking skin floating around in the atmosphere around us that we're breathing every day. Now, if you add in the animals on top of that, you're up to trillions of pounds of flaking skin just floating around in the atmosphere. Kind of a gross thought there, but I thought I'd give that to you. Here's something amazing. The average person in America eats 50 tons of food in their lifetime, and they drink about 11 thousand gallons of liquid during their lifetime. Now I used to run the wastewater plant here on Siesta Key and I can tell you that water weighs 8.34 pounds per gallon. So if you multiply that times 11,000 gallons you're up to what 83 or a little more than about 90,000 pounds of liquids that you're drinking in your lifetime. And then each kidney contains 1 million individual filters and they filter around an average of 2.2 pints of blood every single minute and they expel about 2.5 pints of urine every single day. The focusing muscle of the eyes, you wonder why you get tired and your eyes hurt at the end of the day? It's because those muscles focus about 100,000 times a day. You're looking at your, your uh, wife and then you look off at a mountain scene or you look at the bird that just flew by and 
your eyes are focusing in 100,000 times a day. And if you were to give your legs the exact same workout, you would have to walk over 50 miles every single day. In 30 minutes, the average body gives off enough combined heat to bring a half a gallon of water to a complete boil. And the majority of the pores on the human body are on your head. And so if anybody ever asks you why Sergio is so hot-headed, it's because he's producing all this heat, okay? A single human blood cell takes only 60 seconds to make a complete circuit of the entire body. Get this next one, is simply amazing. The foreskin of a human child the size of a postage stamp takes 21 days to grow into a vast, vast area. Dr. James McGuire, who is the head of wound management at the Foot and Ankle Institute at Temple University says, in some cases, we can get four football fields of skin out of a single baby foreskin. If taken care of, skin can grow and grow. And they use it, as I said, in burn patients so that, you know, we have all of this abundant skin because of the the regenerative properties of a baby's foreskin. The skin on the palm of the hand is particularly unique. You already probably know that everybody has fingerprints and they are unique to the individual. No person in human history will ever have fingerprints like you do. But there's a couple other things that you might not have ever contemplated. There's no hair on the palm of your hand and there is no pigmentation. So it doesn't matter if you look at the darkest skinned people or people up in uh, you know, Alaska or in Florida, wherever you are, there's no pigmentation. But even though there's no pigmentation, the hand skin will not normally burn in the sun. And it will burn if you put it on a hot stove. So don't go trying that at home tonight. But it won't normally burn in the sun so that our hands are always ready for use. And then something else that's unique about them, despite them being very coarse and very rough and, and uh, you know, they're pliable, but the skin is attached to the bone through a layer of fascia, which is unlike the rest of your body. If you move the rest of your body, the skin just moves around, but it doesn't do that on the hand. And so it's actually connected to the bone directly through that fascia. And that way we can grab things again and again and again throughout the day. And we don't wear out our hands. At best, we'll get blisters like I have all over my hands right now from working a couple days ago. But you see, if you were to take off, take and chop off your hand today and go home and study it and look at the complexity of it, you could come to no other conclusion than the marvel of what God created in a human hand. And the same is true with the eye, which is so complex. It is so such a masterful device. And we treat our eyes, you know, we don't even think about them, but they are masters of workmanship. We could go on all day with the amazing facts about the complexity of the human body, which was formed by an infinitely intelligent being who understood not only how we would end up working, such as being able to see and to smell and to taste and to sense things, but he gave us uh, the ability to, uh, of things around us that will excite those senses. In other words, if I put my hand on my wife, you know, I can feel her and I can cherish her. And when I taste orange juice, I can, you know, enjoy that. And we see flowers because they, they excite our senses. And all of these things came from God, understanding how our senses and our feeling and our complexity would work so that we can enjoy these things like hot showers on a cold day and cold showers on a hot day. All of this came from the mind of God. He's given us crickets and birds that delight our morning hours. And every single day, he paints a new sunrise. It is unique 
to any other sunrise in the history of the world. Every single day on Facebook, I go out and I take a picture in the back of my house of the sunrise and I post it on Facebook and every day people say it just gets better and better because every day is unique and then every evening he paints a new sunset into these skies for us. He does all of this for our enjoyment and we can appreciate all of this so much more because of the way that he formed the human being. As King David so wisely said in the Psalms, for you formed my inward parts. You covered me in my mother's womb. I praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Marvelous are your works and that my soul knows very well. In our text verse for today, the psalmist said, you have made him, meaning man, a little lower than the angels. And this seems to put us in a lesser category than the angels. But if you go to Hebrews chapter one, it says this, but to which of the angels has he ever said, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool? Are they not all ministering spirits sent forth to minister for those who will inherit salvation? Yes, although we are a little lower than the angels, it is the angels who have the job of ministering to the people who will inherit salvation. Angels were created, but they are spirits. They lack any potential. On the other hand, man has potential, and it is both unlimited in amount and in variety. And above all of the other potentials that man has is the potential to be redeemed. Thank God for Jesus Christ our Lord. We live in a fallen state, in a fallen world, but God has placed angels in our lives to minister to us when we come to the point of salvation. From that point on, we can infer that the angels are out there working in ways that we don't even know in order to guide us in our redemptive walk. The crown of God's wonderful creation plan is God's image bearer, known as man. Angels tend to his needs unaware, and the domain of the earth is under his care. As special as God formed him to be, man turned away from the creator, you see. And so there is a rift between God and man, and this rift is a vast one that we cannot span. But God did the work to reconcile the two. He sent his son Jesus all things to renew. And so again, we can stand in his glorious light, because of the Savior who has made all things right. And that brings us to point number two today, male and female. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Uh, although this point ought to be completely obvious and unnecessary, it seems that in a confused world in which we live, people cannot figure out even the obvious. God created man, as man and God created woman as woman. In an attempt to deny this though, modern thinking has taken almost everything to extremes that were never intended simply to deny the difference between the sexes. Despite this, men have qualities that are suited for men and women have qualities that are suited for women. Neither is better than the other, but both fit what God has created for the purposes in which he intended them. Concerning the brain alone, I'm not gonna talk about anything else, any other difference between men and women except the brain, but just the brain, there are huge differences between us, as if that shouldn't already be obvious. In relationships, women tend to communicate more effectively than men. They focus on how to create a solution that works for a group, 
talking through issues and they use these nonverbal cues and they use tone and emotion and empathy and they can draw these things out to make understand to understand the communication process more effectively but men tend to uh, be more task-oriented they're less talkative and they're more isolated now let's think about that for a second men don't talk as much as women hmm men have a more difficult time understanding emotions that aren't explicitly verbalized while women tend to intuit emotions and emotional cues these differences explain to us why women sometimes have difficulty communicating and why men or I'm sorry men have difficulty communicating and why men to men friendships look different than friendships between women and thank goodness for that I mean if we all had the same type of relationships we wouldn't have this abundant variety in the world and then when you have a male to female relationship it looks even different men normally process better in the left hemisphere of their brain while women tend to process between both hemispheres this difference explains why men are usually stronger with left brain activities and they follow a task oriented perspective while women typically solve problems more creatively just so you know it seems to me that women's creative problem-solving techniques are usually best noted when they drive their cars and that is why when I drive with my wife I'm the one behind the wheel and not my wife men normally process language in their dominant hemisphere but women process language in both hemispheres and that makes sense to me because it seems that women have so much more to say than men and if they can learn languages then they can just travel all around the world with ever stopping their talking whereas men we just tend to listen and let them go on with their rambling and I'm kidding ladies please don't get upset about this I'm having fun with you women tend to have a thicker parietal region of their brain which hinders their ability to mentally rotate objects now research has shown this ability in male babies at five months old and so environmental conditions have absolutely nothing to do with this so if someone says to a woman you're a little bit thick-headed they may not be far off in all honesty though I want to make an exception about this particular one is my daughter my daughter has exceptional abilities at, at uh, putting together these three-dimensional puzzles she can get a very complex one and she can lay all the pieces out without ever touching them and she can just look at them and she can mentally construct this puzzle in her head and then what she does is she takes the pieces of the puzzle she puts them together within a couple seconds and I can spend days and days and never come to the resolution of how to put that puzzle together so she is a very impressive person and she definitely bucks the system on this particular precept of the women's brains but as you can see and it's quite obvious that there are physical differences between men and women but men and women are different mentally as well so understanding these differences between men and women helps us to understand our different roles as people and as partners and as members of the church even a man is never 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 complete without a woman and a woman is likewise incomplete without a man but together the two of them form a whole they become one and we'll talk about this more as we get into Genesis chapter 2 one more thing to no note on this point though is that the Bible never it never diminishes the worth of a woman instead it exalts them so if you ever hear anybody say that kind of nonsense that is untrue women are exalted in the Bible however I will tell you that cultural 
differences are noted in the Bible, such as the Greek culture, such as the Jewish culture and the Arab culture. Just because these cultural distinctions are made in no way implies that that is prescriptive or to be universally applied. In other words, if if a verse is prescriptive, that means being prescribed, that is what we do with our life. If something is just simply describing something like a cultural difference, that does not mean that God has ordained that. It's just being described based on the cultural difference. Point number three today is what God has ordained. Then God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it, have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Chapter two deals a lot more, as I said a moment ago, with the personal relationships between a man and a woman. However, the subject of marriage, because of that, has to be left to that time, and we're not going to discuss that today. But this particular verse that I just read sets the pattern for physical relationships. God told them to be fruitful and to multiply. So what is implicitly stated there is that sex is meant for the people of the world, but that it has been ordained to be between a man and a woman. The earth cannot be filled with people who are engaged in homosexuality. Instead, God created us, male and female, for the purpose of procreation in order to fill the earth. Anything contrary to this, then, is a perversion of what God has ordained. Accounts such as the one Uh, talking about Sodom and Gomorrah are recorded in the Bible specifically to address the issue of homosexuality. Unfortunately, in order to twist what is written there, homosexual advocates will often say that what is implied in the Sodom account is a belligerent and an unwelcoming attitude of the people in Sodom and Gomorrah and not homosexuality. But if they would simply go ahead and read the rest of their Bible, they would find that the Bible interprets this passage elsewhere, such as in the book of Jude. It says, and the angels who did not keep their proper domain, but left their own abode, he has reserved in everlasting chains under darkness for the day of judgment of the great day, as Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them in a similar manner to these, having given themselves over to sexual immorality and gone after strange flesh, are set forth as an example, suffering the vengeance of eternal fire. In other words, what happened in Sodom and Gomorrah is a picture of what we can expect if we don't turn from this type of behavior for eternity in the lake of fire, which is hell. The law of Moses also gives insights into the matter of homosexuality. And I'm not saying that we're under the law as Christians. We're not. But here's what it says, and it gives us insights into what God thinks about this particular issue. If a man lies with a male as he lies with a woman, both of them have committed an abomination. They shall surely be put to death. Their blood shall be upon them. Now, we don't want to do that anymore. That's not the intent of Christianity is to go stoning people to death, but it's to get them to understand that this is God's nature and this is what he expects and that they should turn and repent from that. God will deal with those who fail to do that. Speaking of what is obvious from creation, including these interpersonal relationships, Paul says this in the book of Romans, for this reason, God gave them up to vile passions, for even their women exchanged the natural use for what is against nature. Likewise also, the men, leaving the natural use of the women, burned in their lust for one another, men with men committing what is shameful and receiving in themselves the penalty of their error, which was due. 
another of God's ordinances that we saw earlier, and it's mentioned again in this verse, verse 28, says, when God said that man is to have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Man has been given ruling authority over the animals of the earth, both for their care and for their control. So to elevate animal life to the same level as man is to actually bring dishonor on God because God created man in his image. By claiming the animals are comparable in rights to man is thus to negate the very authority of God's established hierarchy. I'm sorry about the waves behind us. There must have been a boat that went by, so if you guys can't hear, I apologize. I'm trying to speak as loud as I can today, but I'm a little bit winded anyway. As a society, it's right to work actively against any attempt to give animals rights beyond their normal care and control, and it is also right for us as Christians to work actively against any attempts to normalize homosexual rights and claims within a society. So please keep that in mind. Issues such as these do not mean that we are either uncaring about animals or about homosexuals, but it does mean that we are to uphold what God has ordained above what man desires when it is contrary to God's natural laws. In the end, Verbal and physical attacks against Christians are only going to rise in the future. That's all there is to it. You can expect that if you take your stand against these issues. But you need to determine in advance what is and what is not acceptable and then be ready to stand on those principles even in the face of harsh criticism and in the face of attacks. I'm telling you it's going to come, but you need to be prepared now. Point number four today. It was very Good. And God said, See, I have given you every herb that yields seed, which is on the face of all the earth, and every tree whose fruit yields seed. To you it shall be for food. Also, to every beast of the earth, and to every bird of the air, and to everything that creeps on the earth in which there is life, I have given every green herb for food, and it was so. Then God saw everything that he had made, and indeed, it was very good. So the evening and the morning were the sixth day. On the sixth day, God created all of the beasts of the earth and he created man. Thus, he, create, he completed his creative efforts. These verses then, the ones that I just read, are a reminder of what was available at the time for man to eat. And this seems to imply that there was nothing poisonous in the herbs or in the grains or in any of the fruit of the earth. And this is exactly what you would expect from God's initial act of creation when everything was perfect before sin and death had entered into the world. After making his pronouncement about the food that is available to all the life on the earth, God expands on his comment of the previous five days, which said, it was good, kitov. Instead, on the sixth day, he says, vehine, tov me'od. And indeed, it was very good. It must have been an immensely splendid, an immensely beautiful place before the fall of man. And even after the flood, or I'm sorry, after the fall, but before the flood, the world must have been exceptionally beautiful. And you know what? The Bible says in the book of Isaiah that it is going to again be that way when Christ reigns during his millennial reign, the thousand year reign of Christ, the world is going to be brought back into a beautiful state, which we don't currently see. And 
look around you at the beauty that you see right now and just imagine how glorious it's going to be when Christ comes and makes the world right again for his thousand-year millennial reign. Matthew Henry says in his commentary of this portion of Scripture, the time when this work was concluded, the evening and the morning were the six days, so that in six days God made the world. We are not to think but that God could have made the world in an instant. He that said, let there be light, and there was light, could have said, let there be a world, and there would have been a world, in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, as at the resurrection. Mr. Henry is saying that God could have created everything instantly, but he chose to do it in a series for specific reasons. As we noted last week, God created from the least complex to the most complex, which should inspire us to do the same with our own efforts, ever improving on what we do in life. And God also did his work in six days to show us a good and a proper cycle of living, taking one day a week off each and every single week for rest and relaxation. And also, one more thing, these six days of creation are representative of a greater picture in redemptive history. God concluded his works on the sixth day, and as we're going to see next week, in next week's sermon, he rested on the seventh. And when we analyze that, we'll see the reason why God did it in six days with the seventh day of rest. Until then, let's remember that this is God's world. And man was created to dwell in it, he was created to fill it, and he was created to subdue it and to care for it as well. So let's contemplate these aspects of God's plan as we drink the water that he provides, we eat the food that he gives us each and every day, and as we walk along life's highways and hills and enjoy all of the things that he's given us. Everything that we see, everything that we feel, everything that we taste, everything that we sense is a gift of God and a gift from God. And each demonstrates his intelligence, his wisdom, and his love. As the psalmist so wisely said so long ago, bless the Lord, O my soul. It was very good, said our God, when he gave his creation an approval nod. Man has a home and a place to live. I've prepared it all for him, and to him it I give. I know he'll go his own way, and that in the end, I'll have to save the day. But when he sees the love that I show in my own son, again, his heart, I will have won. After the cry on the cross, it is done. Again, it will be perfect and without a flaw, but better than it was before, because man will stand in humbled awe of the work of Jesus who waits at heaven's door. All who pass through in him will delight and praise his work of powerful might. For eternity men will live in the perfect joy that I give. The waters of life free for all who will but receive the gift of eternal life if you will just but believe. Vehine tov me'od. And indeed, it was very good. Now let me take just one second and talk to you all about the cross of Jesus Christ and why he came and what it means to each and every person. You see, God did create the world, just as the creation account says. Whether you believe it or not, you were standing on earth and it didn't happen all by itself. But everything that's beautiful and everything that's wonderful around you is a gift from God to you. But we rejected God all the way back at the creation. Man said to God, I'm going to do it my own way. And when he did that, it caused the rift that I mentioned earlier. There was this giant chasm between God and man that we cannot 
bridge in any way, shape, or form. And why is that? Because we're finite and God is infinite. So what did God do? He came out of eternity into the time and the space and the matter that he created and he united with human flesh in the person of Jesus Christ. So Jesus Christ is fully God and he's fully man. And therefore he can put his hand on each one of us and say, I will reconcile you to my father. And then he can reach out into the infinite and he can say, I will put my hand on them and I will be the bridge between you two and I will cause peace to reign again. And how does that happen? He gave his life up. He gave up that life that he had on the cross. And all of the wrath that God has for the sins that we've committed, he put on his own son. And he says, if you will acknowledge that you have done wrong and you will just simply confess your sins over this sinless lamb of God, then I will take away your sins. I'm transferring the sin, that, the, the anger and the wrath that you deserve onto my own son and I am giving you peace with me. And this is what Jesus Christ did. And then Jesus Christ came out of the grave. Why? Because the Bible says that the wages of sin is death. Jesus Christ never sinned and therefore death could not hold him. In Acts chapter two, Peter says that. He says it's impossible for the grave to hold Jesus Christ because he never sinned. So he came out of the grave and Paul says in the book of Romans that if you call on the name of the Lord and if you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, then you will be saved. So I would like to take just one quick moment and pray for anybody here that has never made that commitment to Jesus Christ. Heavenly Father, thank you so very much for today. We've got a lot of bugs out here which are scratchy and we've got noisy waves and it's been a little disconcerting today. But despite that, I pray that anybody that's heard this message will understand the sin in their own life and that it can be removed and that they can have peace with you again. I pray for each and every person here that they will get home safely today and that they will have a great week ahead and that you'll just bless them and take good care of them and keep them safe. Lord, we love you and we thank you for every bit of your creation and we long for the day when we will behold you face to face and all things will be made new because of the work of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And it's in his beautiful name that we offer this prayer. Amen.